want to start with you, Ryan. Um, Ryan, you and I were scheduled to have dinner uh, in February in New York City and then with a mutual friend of ours. And then we were going to go to the Suns basketball game because they were in New York to play the Brooklyn Nets. So you were in town. We were going to get dinner. And you canceled on me about an hour before we were scheduled to show up to the restaurant. Uh, and then I checked the news, and a friend you know, told me to look at ESPN. And uh, there were rumors that the Phoenix Suns were about to acquire Kevin Durant from the Brooklyn Nets. Yes. <laughs> they were in Brooklyn to, to play the Nets. Uh, and I, I turned to my wife, um, and I said, I think I know exactly what Ryan is up to. And I, I forgave you pretty quickly. Um, so I want to start with, with your story in terms of building a basketball team, acquiring a player like Kevin Durant. Based now on what you know about Gerard and Mimesis and rivalry, how do you see this playing out in, as you think about building a team or playing out in the, in the NBA in general? What insights has Gerard given you into the work that you do? Yeah, I apologize again, Luke. I had the uh, misfortune of missing that dinner. I don't think I should ever make plans around the trade deadline. Uh, that was three days before the trade deadline and 48 hours later, I literally got the call that we were about to go back into negotiations and I had to call Luke and tell him that I wasn't gonna make dinner. But the, uh, the exposure to Gerard's work through Luke's book, Wanting, was really uh, enlightening for someone who works in the NBA, in the entertainment industry. And effectively, I define my job as a team builder. And I help build teams, I help acquire players that then take the court as the Phoenix Suns. In a, and I do that in a variety of ways with, with my group. And when you look at kind of the, the nature of it all, the, the, all of the conflict, and this is for all of pro sports in general, not just the Suns, all of the conflict in basketball operations stems from the fact that we take all of these uh, disparate groups of people. We take athletic trainers and players and coaches and statisticians and finance people and we ask them to go do something that is exceedingly difficult, to go win an NBA championship. And to give you some perspective on that, sorry about that, to give you some perspective on that, if you have about a 5% chance of winning the title, you're considered a contender. That's how hard it is to do that. And that, while, while that's so difficult, it also is what motivates us and what drives us. And to steal from the title of your book, it is what we want. And so what we want is very, very clear. And because it is so clear, um, it makes the Girardian framework also very clear as well. And when you talk about the whole concept of dis mimetic desire, rivalry, the scapegoating mechanism and everything, um, the desire is obvious, and we can talk about it on two different fronts. The first being the actual on-court players, coaches performing during the game front, and then the other is the front office front, which is where my work is actually, sorry about that, where my work is uh, primarily focused. On the court, um, you know, I, I know everybody here has been citing philosophers and theologians and everything. I'll cite NBA players as my, as my source. And the, the two most prominent figures in the game today um, who have had the most influence on the game today are Steph Curry and LeBron James. And they both have genuinely changed the way that basketball is played. And while that is fantastic for the game overall, and while they have been incredible ambassadors for the game, you also see several players, younger players, but also players of their generation who have desired to be those guys, who have desired to play the way that they play and take the shots that they take. And now we see guys who are shooting 28 to 30 foot threes the way that Steph Curry does. 
and we see players wanting to be a small forward when LeBron James was, a, was the top player in the league at the small forward position. And like I said, while it's great for the league, it actually does have some, some consequences as well for the quality of the game, the quality of the supply of players who are available. And somebody in my role, it's, it's their job to really kind of parse through all of that. And so applying that Girardian framework to even the, the concept of how players play or rather why players play the way they play um, has really kind of enlightened me and opened my eyes to scouting and evaluating talent and kind of the mental side of the game for players in a way that I just had never really seen before. Thank you, Ryan. I, I want to come back to you in, in a bit because I'm interested in how you make a player want something um, that he might not necessarily want, and you sort of, how you can engineer that, in other words, sure. when he joins the team. We'll, we'll come back to that, So I want to get to Alex and Craig first. Um, Alex, so Bernard Arnault, who's the chairman of LVMH, which owns uh, Dior, famously said that luxury is the business of creating desire, and that LVMH doesn't do traditional marketing, because marketing is often just the exercise of trying to figure out what people want, and then giving them what they want. But our nose philosophy is that you, don't, you shouldn't necessarily care about finding out what people want first. You just innovate first. You try to make what excites you, and then you market that, which is in the way is the practice of generating new desires. He does it the other way around, which I find fascinating. Um, so how do you see Gerard's ideas playing out in your industry and at Dior? Um, just wondering if maybe you could riff a little bit on, on what Arnaud has said. So, thank you. Um, and, you know, the number one word in the luxury lexicon is desirability. We say it all the time. I work very transparently. You heard I've worked at a number of different really beautiful houses. And um, we sell things that are extremely beautiful but are certainly not necessities. So, of course, you have to encourage or, or create a desire for why people would want these things. And by the way, uh, spend and, and purchase them for a premium. So we are in the business of creating desirability and being the most desirable luxury houses in the world. And what that means is that um, we are not here for the short term. We, you know, we, we, I do work for a, a, a large uh, group and it is a public company, but many of the brands within the LVMH group have been around for hundreds of years um, and are, are beautiful brands because of the craftsmanship or because of the history or the product or what it is that we create and we make. Um, and we are here to create, we are really, we look at ourselves as sort of, um, protectors of the brand to ensure that they are around for another 100, 200, 300, 300 years. In the case of Christian Dior, we've been around just over 75 years. So it's true, we, don't, we aren't looking at what are our results this quarter, what are our results this month, this year. It's about, are we doing right by the house? Are we, are we doing right to create the appropriate products and to present them to a world um, in a way that, that, that really um, treasures them and positions them um, in line with the history of the house. So it's also a really interesting business because I work on the business side. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm in charge of the Americas region, which means I have to make sure the stuff sells somehow. 
um, but we are very, very, um, really the most important part of our business are, is the creative side. So every house has a creative director who is the one that conceptualizes what are the collections. And to your earlier point, those collections are not based on what customers want. It is based on the inspiration, the creativity, um, and the, the dreams, effectively, of these very talented creative people. Um, so they create in this somewhat of a bubble, and we treasure them like you treasure your players. We treasure our creators um, more than anything. And then we figure out how to translate that for our clients. And then, of course, in partnership with Craig and what he does, creating these really exceptional and beautiful environments in which to introduce clients to these um, exceptional creations. So um, I really work in the world of creating desire because, uh, and we quite literally have, you know, work on a daily basis with many different types of models and, you know, literally and figuratively and influencers, et cetera, who can continue to embody and model the lifestyle that is in line with the house and, and what the house means from both a historical and a creative perspective. Thank you, Alex. You know, I'm interested in this dynamic between the mimetic and the anti-mimetic, right? The mm -hmm. creative side of your business in some sense, they, they want to innovate and they want to create without necessarily being too derivative of what your competitors are doing. Yeah. But that's something that maybe we'll, we'll come back sure. to in a little bit. So I'm fascinated by that question. Um, and you mentioned working with Craig. So let's, <laughs> let's now turn to Craig. Um, and I don't think uh, his bio quite does justice to the role that Craig has played in, in Miami. So Miami used to be known for you know, sun and sand and, and fun. I've had a lot of fun in Miami. But it's really truly, if you've been following, it's become a place that has world-class uh, institutions now, and I know you've, you've played a, a role in making that happen. Um, and I, I think of you as a community builder at some level, and uh, community building is one of the hardest things to do uh, in business and, and in life. So I think maybe, uh, I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, kind of the same question that I, that I asked Ryan and Alex, and where do you see Gerard um, playing into your work? Um, what new insights has he given you? But I, I think maybe some context would be good too in terms of what exactly has been happening in Miami over the last 10, 20 years? Um, it's really interesting because you can look at Gerard and he explains you know, how desire is created, but then it's not necessarily the same process when you want to create desire. And when you want to create desire, from my point of view, like what I did was I really wanted to make my community a better place. I wanted to think about how I could go. I'm in the real estate business, so I didn't want to build another 100 apartments and rent them out or an office building or a typical mall, which is very common and normal. I wanted to try to do something that would elevate my community. And I began by really cherishing an area in, um, in South Beach called the Art Deco District, which at the time was kind of falling apart, disregarded and people didn't know what to do with it. And a group of us got together and said, the largest collection of Art Deco and Mediterranean revival buildings in the world in one area is an asset. And so we worked diligently to figure out how we could turn it into an asset. And that, that kind of created a, a, a new life for Miami. Miami began to flourish in a different way. And then as you mentioned, um, with that success, one of the things that frustrated me was that we were known as a party town. Everybody was coming to South Beach, and this was in the, in the 90s, really, in, in 2000. 
but everybody was coming to hang out at the beach and party. And I didn't really want the, the place that I was born and where I lived and I was working just to be known for that. Um, and I was also, while we were very successful in this area of South Beach, we had a small percentage of the total property. So we were the larger property holder, but we didn't have a lot of, there, people could come and exploit good things that were happening. And I realized that having a consolidated neighborhood where we'd, we would have a lot more control of the destiny, but not own all of it, was a better formula. And so I started to work in this area called the Miami Design District. Simultaneously, I worked very hard because I was into art and, and design, but really art, to get Art Basel, which was the best art fair in the world, to, to come to Miami. It's every year in Basel. It's an incredible event. And the, the vision that I had, because there were a bunch of us that had vision for this, was if you took that sex appeal of Miami and you combined it with um, the profundity, the, the, the tradition of the greatest art fair in the world, that that could be transformative. And it could be transformative because Miami would become known as a city of culture, not just a place to go to the beach and have fun, but a place to see great art. And I then translated that also, which I had been doing by working with Art Deco buildings, working with artists, always trying to do like more innovative and innovation, according to Gerard, started out as a bad word, now it's not such a bad word. Um, but it wasn't really uh, initially perceived as being a great thing, and I think now we all appreciate innovation, um, in the design district. And from the beginning, I took those principles that I had learned and began to apply them in how we could make a creative neighborhood, a place that would celebrate art, architecture, and design, and also give great companies the opportunity to do business. And that has really been, for me, transformative. Um, it's been amazing to see how if you do something that is considered not normal, out of the box, much longer term, um, because things don't happen quickly, especially when you do something new, it takes time for more and more people to become fans of it. Um, and it, and it started to work really well, and that's exciting. So you all have done, you've all have created positive mimesis in some sense. However, I know this, I fully realize this is a controversial term in a, in a room full of Girardians, right? Girard would sort of maybe even push back on the idea that, you know, there is some positive form of mimesis because mimesis, if you give it enough time, enough time horizon, it, it trends towards rivalry almost inevitably. However, you're in businesses where you are trying to do something good. You're trying to build a community. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, you're architects of desire at, at some level. What are the challenges and tensions, Craig, that you've seen in, in trying to do this? I mean, I, I know that it couldn't have been easy. So in the early days, you know, what, who, did you have a model? Did a model even exist? Um, what were the challenges, um, the rivalries that you had to overcome? The, sort of stagnant mindset that would have, that you had to sort of overcome in order to get this momentum going? So I think there are always models, but each model can have new elements. Um, a, a, a strip mall has a you know, grocery store, a drug store, and then with those anchors, they rent some spaces. That's a, a model. Um, but the idea that there are things that anchor a place is very important. And in the, in the case of the design district, we anchored it with incredible art, architecture, and design. Both buildings, uh, outdoor sculptures, outdoor installations, and then 
content also, activations, and we made that what the neighborhood was known for. We didn't make it known as a place to come shop or a place to come eat or a place to come work, but a really good place to just come and celebrate life and creativity. And then collaborating with the best fashion brands in the world, they tapped into that because they had the opportunity also to do something that was different and express themselves more on their brands in a new way. And it's synthesized into this process. At first, it's always hard because whenever you're doing something new, then it takes time for people to recognize and appreciate it. You just start with a smaller audience and then that mimesis builds. And I guess eventually um, the negativity of it is that mimesis can become corrupting. That, that's the, the concern, but it doesn't have to. So there, there hasn't been a, a great scapegoat in Miami yet, I guess. All right. We're on our way, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so Alex, um, I, I know you've, you've worked with Craig in the past, so let's just explore um, this idea of mimesis and anti-mimesis in, in fashion. So one of the things that fascinated me most about the business model is that separation between the creative silo and the business silo. So I'd like to just talk a little bit more about that. You know, to what specifically do you do in terms of architects architecting the organization um, on the creative side or the commercial side to maintain this uh, incubator of creativity? You know, do you shield yourself from what your competitors are doing? Um, what specifically does it look like for those people in the room that might be in business, for those that are entrepreneurs in any kind of creative endeavor, um, even if we're writers, um, how, do we, um, how do we think about creating art or creating something that's good and true and beautiful um, without merely being derivative? Yeah, and I mean, it's fortunately, I, you know, I'm not one of the creatives, but, and I have tremendous respect for them. Um, and you know, what I've witnessed in the environment in which they work is that you know, they're obviously very talented people are, and specifically if you think about um, Maria Grazia Curie, who is our creative director for women's now, she's an Italian woman. She's incredibly inspired also by art. She's also incredibly inspired by various what might be considered local, artisanal, indigenous artists. And um, she's worked very closely, for example, with artisans in India. And we recently did a fashion show um, in Mexico City in, in May of this year, where, where she utilizes the hands and the workmanship of those local, um, local artisans to, to kind of connect with couture. So every, every designer is really inspired and gets their um, inspiration via other avenues. And there's a very sort of famous story about Christian Dior himself, who, um, which I could speak for hours about him and in, in this, uh, the amazing house that I work for and how it started by, by the way, he only lived for 10 years after starting his house. It was very short-lived, but very impactful. And he had the most amazing process, which was, and, and, and fashion and couture, it was really couture at that time, was very different, whereby he would introduce a collection, they would sell the collection, um, and then he would leave Paris and go to his home in the countryside and close the door, literally, and shut himself up for days and just design his new collection from scratch. So he literally shut himself up in his, in his country, house, country house and did that. And ironically, I was speaking to um, some designers based in um, New York City today, young guys, 
um, from Proenza Schooler, which is a, a New York-based brand. They learned this story about how Christian Dior's process um, from, from when they at school at Parsons in New York City, and that is now their process too. So after a collection, they go home, they lock themselves up, and they design sort of the inspiration for, for their, next, um, their next show. So yes, design and creativity, while you know, it is incredibly amazing, it's also about how you curate elements from your life and from the world around you to bring forth kind of a new, a new way to look at fashion or a new way to look at design. Um, and they are all inspired by each other. Um, and there is, there is effectively nothing new in fashion. It's all somehow derivative from something else. Um, and I'll say one more thing, which is Craig has also become quite the model because um, I, I speak a lot with landlords from around the country and I hear, I've heard more than once, we're trying to make the Miami Design District of here. Or we're trying to make uh, the, the Miami Design District of there. And I always say, but you don't have a Craig Robbins. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's gonna be a challenge to do that. Well, Craig, I, I would love to bring the Miami Design District to the swamp. Ryan, so you know, I, when I think of the MBA and I think of, I think of you as an analytical person, um, and a lot of there's like the, the money ball aspect of the MBA. I think I once heard, you know, a scout say that he sort of knows the length of the femur. Um, of the of the guys that he's scouting. Was that me? It might have been you. Yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah, so, okay. <laughs> um, so so you can be that technical, yeah. Right? Like understanding like, how fast a guy will be able to run and how high he'll be able to jump. Yet there also seems to be an art to it. You know, we're, we're on this panel talking about mimetic desire, and rivalry. So maybe you could speak to that juxtaposition between you know the analytical, the technical, and the art. And when I think of the art, I think of you know, constructing a championship team, you know, I, to what extent can you engineer that? Um, you know, to what extent can you bring a player that might not desire winning the championship the way that Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. you know, had that innate drive, I don't know where it came from, and bring him onto a team um, where other guys do and then have that catch fire by contagion? Just speak a little bit about how, how that dynamic plays out in your job. That's a very big question. <laughs> but it, it does start with, there's kind of two realities. Number one, we do play a zero-sum game on the court. And because of that, that is why Moneyball, the introduction of data and statistics, has been so powerful in professional sports. Because you can, to some degree, optimize the performance of the game in a way that can benefit you. However, um, the reality is that our team is made up of personalities and people. And it is a very human problem in the end uh, what we are ultimately dealing with, which is, as I mentioned before, trying to get a collection of people to accomplish this insanely difficult singular task. And when you talk about the, the, uh, the scapegoating mechanism of this as well, that's when it really gets tricky because our results are very, very public. Anyone in this room right now can pull up their phone and find out just how we did last night against the San Antonio Spurs. We did not play well, and everyone knows it. And you can scan the box score, you can point at the players who have negative plus minuses, you can point at the coach, you can point at me, you can point at James, you can point at everyone and say, why didn't you do X so that you, you achieved a better result? And over the course of a season, over the course of a playoff series or four years, um, it's easy to then say, you're the problem, you're fired, get out, or tell a player, you're the problem, we're gonna trade you or cut you or waive you. And that is, it's not necessarily irrational, that take, but it is dangerous in the sense of that human element, that human problem. 
And the way that we have to combat that is through, well, number one, we're extremely fortunate that our president and GM, James Jones, has won three championships. He knows what it takes to build a collective team that can win a championship. Um, and the way that we combat that is modeling his behavior. And we model that behavior with our top players. We are very, very lucky and very fortunate that our best players are who they are, uh, Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. Uh, really good people, but also guys who love to play the game of basketball. And while that sounds so simple, anyone in here who is an NBA fan knows that we're dealing with this kind of crisis of load management and players not playing, and the league has taken extra steps this season actually to correct that, changing the number of games that you have to play to qualify for certain awards. Um, there's new salary cap rules in place and whatnot around this fact. And the way that we kind of establish the culture so that internally a loss to the Spurs last night does not completely derail a season is by having those strong guys at the top, by having Coach Vogel and by having James who embody that, um, the model that we want people to mimic. Like, I guess that is the positive mimesis, right? right? Of we are going to go out tomorrow against the Philadelphia 76ers and we are going to play to beat them as another step toward the championship. And it's very easy to um, overlook that the necessity of that culture piece because all of the noise and all of the swirl around you, ESPN, Fox Sports, Twitter, I actually, I deleted my Twitter after game three of the NBA Finals when we lost to the Bucks uh, because I realized that it was not helping me at all to see people's opinions of how we were performing. Um, but that, that's one way in which we can do it is by being very, very deliberate in who we have at the very top of our roster and who we have at the top of our organization. Thank you. So I, I want to ask one last question for all three of you, if you could briefly answer then. I, I'd like to open it up to audience questions for about uh, 10 minutes. And my last question really piggybacks off of um, something you just said, Ryan. So, you know, the Phoenix Suns win a championship. Then what? Right. One, of the, one of the hardest things to do in sports is to win multiple championships. It changes the entire dynamic of desire on the team. So um, that is basically my question, is then, then what, right? What's the what's the transcendent desire here, right? So I, I would ask that of, of all of you. I mean, you know, in the Miami Design District, I, you know, I, I doubt that your highest aspiration, Craig, is, you know, simp merely to, you know, increase, you know, revenue at, at one, of, one of the stores or something. So, um, you know, how, how do you think about, you know, what you want people to want? It would be one way to put it. Or where is this all headed? And how do you sustain long-term desire? It goes back to something Alex said, right? Building a brand over a century um, there's not a lot of businesses that have been in business for that long, right? So that sustained desire, how do you think about um, going beyond the kind of a, a immediate goal, um, immediate object to something that perhaps is more of a lifestyle, um, more of a, 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 an aspirational lifetime goal? How do you, let's start with you, Craig. So I think when we talk about the negative process in mimesis, it's sort of like what Nietzsche would refer to with politics or success in business or governments, how they would get to a level of success and then that success would corrupt them. And success is definitely a corrupting force. Um, when you start to have success, you need to resist becoming full of yourself and excited and living in that and think about how to dig deeper and even find a more profound message that you can then communicate with the world. So like in the case of the design district, 
Now it's pretty universally recognized as an amazing neighborhood. People are very complimentary. The, the businesses there are very successful. And what we need to think about are now new elements that will actually add and expand the equation, bringing in different uses, but doing it on brand, more hospitality, even more places for people to work and live. So it becomes this 24-hour oasis, oasis where people can live, work, hang out, enjoy themselves. But most importantly, I think the message is we never want it to be a place where you're gonna go live, shop, work. We want it to be a place that you wanna visit. It's an exciting place where if you have a friend that's going to Miami, you say, you've gotta go see the design district, not you've gotta go shop there. Of course, when you're there, you might end up in Christian Dior and buy some beautiful things. Thank you, Craig. And, and Alex, what, what are your thoughts on this kind of broader question about where the brand sort of is headed? It's the, the question we ask ourselves every day. Um, we have eight collections a year, four men's shows, four women's shows, two couture shows. So we have to continue to rein, reinvent ourselves. And, and really what we look for, um, the, the biggest objective that I have is to just really continue to connect with our customers. Um, continue to tell our brand stories, continue to share the codes of our house that some may be historical and some continue to be developed to this day. It's a living and breathing house. I spoke a lot about creativity and creative direction because it really is the most important thing that we have. But um, for me, it's really about continuing to tell these stories, connecting with our clients, building loyal relationships. Luxury is emotion. You know, we, we, we connect with people because there's some emotional underlying mimesis that makes them um, want to continue to engage and be part of our lifestyle. So continuing to figure out how we, how we build that lifestyle. We have restaurants, we're building a spa, so to really kind of round out that, that way to experience uh, our beautiful house, so. Thank you, Alex. Um, and then my question to, to Ryan, I, I hope you know, the Phoenix Suns win the championship this year. Uh, well, I'm a Pistons fan, so I don't, I don't actually hope that, but eventually. Um, if not them. But then, then well, let's, let's assume that that happens. You know, um, does does the, the nature of the work change? That you just asked the existential question that keeps me up at night, honestly. And I, and I say that because we were two wins away from winning a title uh, two years after James took over the organization, uh, going from historically terrible to two wins away within two years. And I remember distinctly, this was the COVID finals against Milwaukee, and I distinctly remember sitting on the baseline um, and in game four, and we were still up 2-1 in the series, and Giannis was having a historic game as he would go on to have a historic series. And the thought occurred to me, if we go on to win this series, then what? And I had never stopped to answer that question, truthfully. And it just so happened that that same year, my college basketball team, I worked for Baylor men's basketball for five years as well under Scott Drew, they won the national championship that same year. So we were very close to having a personal dynasty of college basketball and NBA. And I remember talking to them and their staff and they said they woke up the next day and they went right back to work. And there is something beautiful about that, right? Because it is like the trophy itself does not uh, absolve you of anything. Um, it does not, if you don't have that, in, that intense competitive desire within you to wake up every morning and continue to do this, uh, then that, the trophy is not going to help that. But the model that I use and that I'm, I'm trying to relay to my team daily now is each season is its own independent problem. 
Each season has its own independent set of factors that have to be considered, and that's based on the supply of players, that's based on the rule changes, the CBA changes, the salary cap, and if we approach it from that dynamic, every year we're just trying to solve one problem after the other. And of course, players learn skills and there are team dynamics that are at play. Continuity does matter year to year. I'm not arguing that. But from a, from a drive and from a motivational standpoint, to keep all of us going, because it is, a grueling, it is a grueling thing to go from the end of September to hopefully the end of June, training camp to the NBA Finals every year, um, where you're around this, this group of individuals every single day of the week. Um, it is a grueling thing to go through, and you do have to stay motivated in that way. And I think when you can frame it in that sense where we're going to win the title this year and then we're going to flush it, celebrate it, but we're going to flush it and then we're going to solve next year's problem. That's, that's really how we've chosen to, uh, to tackle that issue, that existential crisis. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. I think that's wisdom that we can all apply to our own lives in some way. Did you hear that, Andreas? Every day is an independent problem for us. <laughs> so I, I think we have time for a few audience questions. We'll get you a mic first. Thank you so much for that. I actually thought it was very enlightening. Um, I have a question for you, um, Alex, in particular. When you're, when, when I think about, so I'm, I'm a Frenchman, and um, when I think about Bernard Arnault, um, he represents in the French culture, his brand, the epitome of luxury, beauty, narrative, and history. And, You've spoken about how the marketing model is inversed. So I wanted to ask, uh, because the basis of all desire is beauty, how do you determine what is the concept of beauty at LVMH? It's a great question. Um, and I think, and, and thank you for, for, for mentioning the fact that uh, Mr. Arnaud and Christian Dior are French, because that is so much about LVMH as well as this concept of French joie de vivre taste, et cetera, and which is really why Christian Dior specifically um, was so successful from the, from the beginning, um, that, that this, 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 the, the ability to kind of live that very chic Parisian woman lifestyle. And by the way, in the beginning, um, very quickly after he launched his house, American women were the number one clients of Christian Dior. So this was the most important market for him. Um, so. You know, I think we put a lot of uh, a lot of confidence into our creatives, like I mentioned, in terms of what is the concept of beauty. And again, we, and if you hear any of them speak, they sp and we all, all most houses have very very deep archives, historical material, every piece, uh, not not always, but you know collect every piece that's ever created and, and preserve them, and they become real like libraries of fashion. Um, so there's a lot of respect for the archives, what has come before. Every house has had many, many creative directors, and they all kind of have mutual respect for the ones that come before. So, um, and to be completely transparent, like anything, if they are not successful, they don't last very long. So if the beauty hasn't been kind of acknowledged by the general public, even though it is coming from them and not necessarily giving them what they ask for, someone else will come along. So I think there is something very uniquely um, 
you know, important about f France and uh, la vie française to, that it comes into what we do and comes into certainly what happens at um, LVMH. Um, and, and certainly the market determines what is beautiful and isn't beautiful, but we at least make our proposals from the start. I hope that answers. I think we have time for one more question. A uh, question for fellow Arizonan, Ryan. I came from Arizona too, so oh, shout awesome. out. Um, love the suns. I kind of want to ask a, the opposite question of the question that Luke asked after the championship, then what? After the championship loss, mm -hmm. did you ever see cracks in the structure of the things that you guys were trying to do in the sense that the mimesis became about mimicking the Bucks, for instance, or mimicking another team and what they were doing, rather than kind of keeping your eyes on, on your prize. Obviously, you're not going to find another Giannis, yep. but the question like, <clears throat> for me as a Suns fan was, how are we going like, to yeah. combat that next year, right? And sure. so I wonder if you see cracks in the, in the mimesis from the championship to another team. If I, I told Luke last night that I had to make several edits to, to the, what I was going to discuss up here, because that was going to be one of them. Um, there was, a, there was a pretty popular quote by another executive in the league a few years ago when Golden State was just running rampant across the league. And he said that what keeps him up at night is trying to, figuring out how to beat the Golden State Warriors. And that quote always struck me as very odd. And it struck me as odd because at least the way that I approach my work and the way that we tend to approach our work in Phoenix is we are very inwardly focused. Um, and, I, and I hope, since you are a Suns fan, I hope that you have seen that uh, throughout the years that we have taken to rebuilding this team. Because I find that when you are so extremely focused outside of our walls, you tend to lose sight of everything that's going on inside. And it is such a, it's such a delicate dance daily of managing the people, managing the front office alone, plus the players and the health staff and the coaches. And um, to answer your question, did we see cracks? It's hard to say because the next season we set a franchise record for wins without many changes to the team. But I'll say this, I think where we saw a crack was the success came so easily and so quickly. We made the finals the first year after a 10-year playoff drought, um, which is unheard of to do that, that I don't know if we really appreciated how difficult it was to get to that point. And then these past, again, all of this is public. <laughs> the, the past two seasons, we have had fairly embarrassing losses in the second round. And Again, I don't think that there is a single scapegoat there to the, to the point of this conversation, but I, I wish that if we could go back, I wish that we had had greater discussion around just how difficult it was to get to that point so that possibly we could have dissected it, uh, figured out how to better control it, figured out how to better manage toward it. Um, but that's also just how I tend to approach these things. So. Thank you so much, Ryan. Um, Craig, Alex, Ryan, thank you for accepting this crazy invitation, strange <laughs> invitation for me. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you.